0: It's good to be with you. Let's pray, shall we, as we come to God's Word. Fathers, we've already sung. Uh, Lord, your Word reminds us at times just to to be quiet. Uh, We can be so frantic, so busy, at times, Lord, in fact, so bitter and complaining, and your Word reminds us that we just need to be still and take our eyes from ourselves and from our circumstances to consider you our great God and Savior. So we ask that you give us the ability to uh, put away distractions and to dig into your word together that we may know you better and be changed by your word. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, how would you describe the Christian life? Uh, In the United States, I found myself... um, strangely attracted uh, to Christian TV cable channels. Uh, however, it wasn't for the right reasons. I, I was just drawn to how awful they were. I couldn't believe that people had hairdos like that, and so it sat on golden thrones like that. And I think if you have cable TV, you can even get some of these channels in the UK, although I wouldn't really encourage it. Um, And I noticed that many of the speakers and preachers that they seem to have viewed the Christian life really as one big luxury cruise liner trip. Uh, And they often presented God really as a magnificent waiter, always at hand, ready to meet all our uh, material and physical needs. And uh, God was eager to bring us success. God was eager to bring us ease and comfort as we sailed majestically to heaven and uh, Many of them even offered special cruise ship vacations with them on board, to uh, underline the point. Well, the Bible, I think, has has a lot more realism about the Christian life. And I think it's fascinating to kind of read the New Testament and look to see uh, how it reflects, what passages from the Old Testament it uses to describe the, the Christian life. It doesn't often uh, put us... Well, it doesn't at all put us in the Garden of Eden. Uh, it doesn't put us in the, in, in the glorious reign of King Solomon. It puts us, more often than not, as you read the New Testament, in the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites. And just like our reading from Hebrews 3 today, which reflected uh, through Psalm 95, this incident of grumbling that we read about in our reading today. The Christian is someone who has been rescued out of slavery to sin, uh, from living to serve Satan, and a world that's opposed to God has been rescued from that, has been redeemed from that way of life by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, by his sacrifice on the cross. And the Christian is one who has been rescued out of that slavery and uh, has has experienced kind of the Red Sea crossing of baptism and has experienced... Uh, and, and is, is then heading on a pilgrimage through this, as we sang in our opening hymn, this, this barren, weary land as we head towards the promise of the fulfillment of the gospel which is a, a new heavens and a new earth where we dwell with God uh, fully and enjoy him forever. And having been saved, then God starts us on this journey of, of sanctifying us changing us shaping us to be more and more conformed to be his holy people to prepare us for that day that is yet to come and he does this of course by taking us into the wilderness living in the desert is tough but that's the description that best fits the experience of the christian life in this fallen world and what we read this morning at uh, what um was read to us with three major incidents the, the bitter waters of Mara at the end of chapter 15, the cry for food in the desert of Sin, close to Sinai, and then we had in chapter 17 another water crisis at Rephidim. And in a sense, we could easily have, uh, uh, have devoted a whole sermon on each of those three events. But today we're just going to consider the whole together. Maybe we'll come back at a later stage to consider more detail. But one of the characteristics that I find commends the Bible to me as the word of God is it's just brutal realism. The way that it just kind of points out the honesty of the human condition. Because here's biblical realism. The same people who were enthusiastically back in chapter 15 praising God for a great salvation as they watched the uh, Egyptian army go under in the Red Sea Three days later from that very event, they were grumbling. Isn't that incredible? A great day of singing of God's praises within three days, they were grumbling against Moses, their leader. And those who rejoiced at their freedom uh, were in a few weeks' time longing to be back as slaves. Now this is bizarre, isn't it? And in a matter of months, These same people who were enthusiastically singing God's praises with Moses, their leader, were talking about stoning him. Which is very encouraging if you're a Christian leader, isn't it? How does it change so dramatically? Well, look at uh, chapter 15 and verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water so we're on page 73 of the church bible page 73 they travelled in the desert without finding water now when things get tough we all too quickly forget God's blessings of the past I mean they just seen the most incredible miraculous deliverance within three days it's as if it never happened that past decisive victory of God quickly forgotten as as something immediate presses in on them that they need water it is a serious thing isn't it not to be out to, be, to not have water I don't know whether you've gone off for a hiking trip in the hills or something and forgotten to take water and you've had nothing to drink I mean even if you go four or five hours of, of, of lots of activity without water you know that beginning of panic starts coming and the desperation that you can feel you need something you need something to drink and water is the sweetest most beautiful most loveliest drink you could ever drink is not it? when you're desperately thirsty oh the nectar of water and um, they'd wandered for three days they'd run out of supplies and what a joy then to see a big pool of water in front of them. Praise God, you know. We were in need. God provided. You can see them charging towards the pool, up over the sand, throwing their faces in. <laughs> Just absolutely disgusting water. What's going on here? What's going on here? Verse 23 When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Now, how on earth did they get into this mess? Well, we made the point last week. Let's make it again. Did they get their guidance wrong? No. No, it's pretty clear, isn't it, that uh, God's guidance was unmistakable. A pillar of cloud by day to follow, a pillar of fire by night to follow. It's not that hard, is it? Uh, They weren't in this place of bitter water because they'd gone the wrong way. No, God had led and guided them to this very spot. It is God who led these thirsty people to bitter waters. It was God who guided them through the wilderness where they worry about what they will eat and what they will drink. God's curious guidance, according to Exodus, can often lead us. We need to hear this over and over, I think. God's curious guidance can lead us into places of disappointment, discouragement, deprivation, and despair. God's guidance can lead us to those places. Now, it's not always the case. Praise God. Verse 27 of chapter 15. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. Sounds a lovely oasis, doesn't it? God is fully able to, to lead us to places of plenty and refreshment and rest, uh, a place where you know, there's a spring for every tribe, enough to quench all their thirst. So God's able to do that. So what does it tell us when he leads us to the place of bitter waters? Well, it tells us something that we find hard to believe as Christians, that God is as much present in our difficulties, in our struggles, in our disappointments. He's as much present with us there as he is when things are going fantastic and swimmingly. When times are tough, we can be often tempted to ask the question that they ask at the end of chapter 17, verse 7, is the Lord?" among us or not things go tough and we say to ourselves is the lord with us it can't be so can it yes yes it can be so god leads us into these difficult circumstances to teach us vital lessons things that we could never learn in just times of plenty God takes his sons and daughters into the wilderness to to learn more about ourselves and more importantly to learn about him. God takes us, uh, in a sense he could take us straight to glory, couldn't he? I mean, we could, in a sense the moment we prayed the prayer of repentance we could kind of drop dead and go straight to glory. He could do that, couldn't he? But more often than not, he takes us on a pilgrim journey to this barren and weary land before we get there. And the first thing I want to stress from this section is that what we need to learn about God here is that God is the testing healer. And I say that because of verses uh, 25 and 26 of chapter uh, 15. Then Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water and the water became sweet. We'll think about that later, but look at this next bit. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them and there he tested he said if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians for I am the Lord who heals you from time to time God leads us into testing experiences now I don't know about you but that can sound sort of cold to me testing Uh, It's not something we tend to enjoy, is it, being tested? Uh, In education, most people hate exams. Many students have started going through, are going through exams right now. And yet, why do schools and universities test us? They do it because they believe it's going to develop us. It's going to force us to, at least at one point in our lives, get those facts into our head. We may forever be going to a textbook to pick up those facts later, but we're going to at least have a go putting them in our head at that point. It's used to shape our minds, order our thinking. In sport, too, it's important to be tested, isn't it? If you only play tennis, banging a a tennis ball against a wall, you're not going to get very far. You need to play guys who are better than you, who are going to push you, going to give you a schooling, give you a lesson, thrash you and test you and help you grow and improve. Only then will you develop your skills and strength. But, of course, our fear of testing is that someone is committed to seeing us fail. But that's never true with God. He doesn't test us in order to see us fail. The purpose of his testing us is that we can come to know him better. And so that we can kind of develop our muscles of faith to trust him. So he brings us into situations which calls for faith, to bring us from kind of baby faith to... um, childhood faith from childhood faith into adult faith and so on into the maturity of faith where we can trust God in all our challenges and our struggles so God brings us I think to these times of testing so that we can be people who learn to trust him more specifically he wants us to grow in obedient faith that's the trust that counts it's one that results in obedience look back at verse 25 There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. He wants to teach them the importance of obeying his word. They've experienced so much grace from God, freed from slavery, delivered from their enemies, and and now they're being provided for in the desert. And what's the proper response to all this grace? The proper response is obedience. It's the same in chapter 16 and verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. These testing experiences are about helping us to grow in our trust in him. Is that clear? And what's the evidence of our trust, of our faith? It is obedience. God's desire for you and me, if we're Christians here today, is that day by day we are growing in obedient faith now it's useless to protest that we have faith in God if we're refusing to be obedient to God and his word when things are tough it's easy to say we trust God when all is well when we're kind of living in the oasis of Elim but when we're in the bitter waters of Mara that's when it's really important that we trust him that's the testing place that's the testing part of the testing here let's think about this healing part why does god put us in the bitter place Well, look at that final puzzling statement at the end of chapter 15 verse 26 for i am the lord who heals you so what's god healing israel of in this incident it's a slightly odd phrase isn't it They're thirsty, and God provides a way of turning the waters of bitterness into sweet waters to drink that will satisfy their thirst. That's a wonderful thing, but would you call that healing? How is the Lord their healer? And I want to suggest to you today that that phrase really transforms our understanding of these uh, wilderness accounts, of these testing times. God's great desire and work, I believe, is, is to take sinful Messed up people like you, like me, and, 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 and heal our broken, sinful hearts. This is what God is doing in the times of testing. He's taking divided hearts, and he's putting us in a place that we learn to lean on him, and trust him, and walk in the way of obedience, and he will bring healing to our hearts you see our sin spoils all our relationships it spoils our relationship with our uh, spouses with our kids it spoils our relationship with God and God's in God's goodness and grace he'll put us into places where he will speak you know he saved us out of Egypt but we're still struggling with sin and he's going to put us in places that help deal with this remaining indwelling sin in our hearts Now, we are so accustomed to our sinfulness that we often overlook it. We overlook the fact that we are seriously sick. I mean, what was the sin of Adam? The sin of Adam, there there he was in paradise, enjoying all of the garden, enjoying fellowship with God, and uh, yet he listened to the lies of Satan and disobeyed God's word. And so, out of the garden they went. So we could begin to see the seriousness of, of rejecting God's word, of that broken relationship Such is the perverseness of our hearts that even with all the evidence of his love and his power in our lives, we will so often choose to disobey his words. That was our reading from Hebrews 3 today, wasn't it? See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Who's he addressing? He's addressing Christians, isn't he? See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. In 15 verse 26, God speaks of the diseases he brought on the Egyptians. I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. Now why, why did the Egyptians and why did Pharaoh have such a hard time? Because they kept disobeying God's commands. The plagues kept coming as they kept rejecting God's words. You know, we, we read uh, phrases like in verse uh, 26 of um, listening carefully to uh, the voice of God and uh, this language of verse 25 of decrees and laws and we instantly see, see the word law and we shout legalism and we run away. But listen to what Jesus said in John 15. He says this, You are my friends if you do what I command. And again in, in John 14, If you love me, you will obey what I command. See, our slavery, our sickness before we come to Christ is that we have rebellious, disobedient hearts that keep turning away from the living God. That's the the essence of our problem. And God has saved us from the full consequences of that and he is on this process of healing us and putting us in testing circumstances so that we can grow into wholeness so we can grow in our spiritual health and vitality, uh, so that we grow to be those who trust him, who grow in relationship with him, which is marked by obedience. See, God loves us too much to leave us stewing in our sin. God loves us too much. Now, we often think that the most important thing, really, in our lives is to get materially satisfied. Um. We think our greatest need is for water and for food. And in fact, we've, we're so wealthy as a, as a society now, we finesse. What type of food? Not just beef, but Kobe beef. Or it's, you know, it's not just this thing. It's, it's a special sort of thing. We, we have amazing shows about how we can have really expensive, luscious foods. We're so spoiled. And we think, actually, yes, if I have that, that's the most important thing. We think our greatest need is perhaps for comfort and ease. We think maybe our greatest need is for satisfying human relationships and and perfect health. But you see, God is not so superficial. He's not so man-centered as that. He knows that our greatest need is none of the above, but instead to experience the healing of our sinful hearts so that we may know Him and enjoy Him. And He's committed to healing these twisted hearts, even if it means guiding us through disappointments, deprivation, discouragement and despair for he is the lord who heals us a while back i I did a a counseling course and i had to read a book by dr larry Crabb. Uh, it, it was called finding god but the thing that about the book that interests me the most was the dedication he dedicated it to the memory of dr charles smith and i quote a mentor who prayed for his cancer to return if it would bring him closer to god That really startled me. A mentor who prayed for his cancer to return if it would bring him closer to God. In the last year, he found God in a measure he had never known before, and then he died of cancer. It's pretty powerful that, isn't it? There's something more important than our physical health. There's something more important than being pain-free. It's to know God, to trust Him, to grow in obedience, to enjoy him. Secondly, this passage reveals the gracious provider, chapter 16. Now, I've spent most of the time building on this first point because I I think it's the key to understanding this section. And if you're in the middle of distressing circumstances right now, as uh, I know that a number of you are, and you're still trying to come to terms with these events, I want us to also see here how God is such a gracious provider. Look at the response of the people to their testing experience. Uh, Look at chapter 2 of verse 16. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Can you imagine that? The whole community are grumbling. We as Brits understand that. You know the joke in Australia? How do you know you've got a plane from Britain landing in Sydney? when the engines are off you can still hear the whining you heard that? our Aussie friends love that, they think that's so funny I heard that several times that was not in my notes, And hey, let's keep back to my notes the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron I mean they've been wandering in the wilderness for over a month now and they've had enough one month out camping trip is over they've had enough then in verse 3, they get a big case of rose tinted nostalgia. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Wow. Very selective memories, don't you remember? They're sitting there, they're going, oh, I tell you what, great barbecue, wasn't it? Oh, all the prawns you could eat. Great barbecue in Egypt. That buffet, oh, tremendous. I mean, they were throwing their male sons into the river, you know, as they were eating their ribs. <laughs> great place, Egypt, great place. You know, rose-tinted spectacles. It seems incredible that only after a month they could be longing for slavery. In fact, what are they saying? They're saying, forget this salvation, God. Forget it. Better that nothing had happened. It's incredible, isn't it? But the truth is, we're just like them, isn't it? We're just like these people. It's easy to forget, particularly if we've been Christians for a while, just what it's like to live without Christ. We can get twisted nostalgia. If only I wasn't a Christian, thinks the single person I'd have a better life right now. Maybe I could have married that non Christian person, settle down, have a nice big house, family. Oh if only I wasn't a Christian, the young person thinks I could go with the crowd to those parties, I could, you know, try those drugs, drink too much, have sex. If only oh that's that would be the life. It's skewed thinking, isn't it? As we forget the negatives about not following Christ. It's ingratitude of the highest order, really to forget all the amazing blessings that we've received but the truth is 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 that we can all be exactly like these Israelites and you couldn't blame God could you if you lost his patience at this point but look how God responds to the Israelites and they're grumbling he responds with amazing grace this is wonderful verse 4 then the Lord said to Moses I will rain down bread from heaven for you you want meat? you'll have meat at night you'll have bread in the morning God is the gracious provider. All this grumbling, all this moaning, and yet for 40 years, he sustains the people of Israel in the wilderness with manna. Now how deeply rooted are our hearts of unbelief? Well, look at uh, chapter 17, verse 4. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they follow my instructions. Their hearts and our hearts are so persistent in their unbelief that God gives them a daily test of obedience in order to teach them the blessings of obedience. 365 days a year, bit of a change on the Sabbath day, but God provided daily for them so they could learn that man does not live by bread alone, as Jesus put it but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And they're instructed to get out there and and gather enough for the day. And if they tried to gather more than that, they would learn the hard way. Verse 20, However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They get part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. God calls on his people to day by day, trust his word and trust his gracious provision. Now I wonder, have you ever kind of daydreamed about winning the lottery have you oh there's a few smiles yes yes I think I think we've all had that little daydream haven't we maybe there's a very holy person there who's never had that daydream but I've had that daydream we've all had that daydream um what would it be like you know what could I do with an extra 20 or 30 million mm. yes well I'd pay off the house yes that's right um sort out the pension um, leave my miserable job uh, get that nice car of course I'd donate some money to the church yes Lord I would I would now what are we wishing for when we're wanting to win the lottery we're wishing that we could be completely self-sufficient and not have to trust God at all that's what we're wishing for Have you ever wished that life was just easier? But God knows that it's far healthier and spiritually beneficial for us to to keep having to trust him. And so he teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. The only day that they were uh, to gather two days worth was was the day before the sabbath the sabbath was the day that god rested from his work of providing the manna and he graciously provides enough manna the day before that, that would last over the sabbath day this stuff wouldn't go stinky with maggots so they wouldn't have to work now think about this this is a wonderful thought isn't it as we live busy crazy lives diaries out of control Here's another beautiful picture of enjoying the blessings of God. He's given a day of rest, a gift to his people. A day where they don't have to go out and collect. A day that they can just rest with God. A day of obedience to God's words. Maybe we need to recover a sense of that. You know, the Lord's Day rest that he gives us in our hurly-burly lives. God is so gracious, isn't he, in this account of how he provides for his people. I mean, can you imagine the logistics of providing food for this many people in the wilderness for 40 years? You'd need trains, you know, a couple of miles long of food rolling in every day to feed these people. And yet God provides for them every day for 40 years. And consider the way that God turns the bitter waters of Mara into drinking water. This is just a very beautiful thing. Look back at chapter 15, verse 25. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Long before Moses was ever born, God caused a tree to grow next to these bitter waters. A tree that, when thrown into the waters, would make it drinkable again. Now, this is, this is the amazing thing about God's grace and provision, that even before the people come to that place of, of deprivation, to that place of trial and testing, God's already made full provision for them. The solution is already there. They just have to cry out to him, and he, sh- he shows them, well, actually, I've already been... I have one made earlier. Just throw that in. This is God's grace, his gracious provision. And of course, all this gracious provision is pointing us forward to the greatest display of God's grace and provision in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have time to develop all the ways that these, that these chapters are picked up in the New Testament, but let's just turn to John 6. Keep finger in Exodus. Let's go to John 6. It's a very important cross-reference here. In John chapter 6, the crowds ask Jesus for a sign. Uh, This is remarkable, given he's just fed 5,000 people in the wilderness. No, Jesus, really make it a sign this time. I'm not sure what they're asking for. He's fed 5,000 people in the desert with miraculous bread. And they said, well, show us a sign, Jesus. And John 6, verse 32. That's on page 1,070. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Look at verse 48 over the page. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. 40 years of miraculous bread from heaven to prepare people for Jesus. He kind of highlights the sign again by feeding the 5,000 and then he tells them what it's all about. He is the bread of life given by God from heaven. And when we come to Jesus, when we believe on him, we receive eternal life, he says. He will raise us on the last day into full resurrection life because he's going to the cross to pay the price for our sins. And each month we come, don't we, to the Lord's Supper uh, as we take bread and drink of the cup as a spiritual sign of the eternal life that Jesus gives to all who trust him. Are you trusting him this day? Have you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you received this eternal life? Are you confident that when you die that you will be raised on the final day with Christ? These chapters reveal God to us as, as the testing healer, as the gracious provider. But but God's gracious provision is seen even more ac- acutely in this third incident in chapter 17 of Exodus at Rephidim. So turn back to Exodus chapter 17. And of course, all these incidents raise the challenge to us: How will we respond in the trials of our lives? Are we going to be testing God? or are we going to be trusting God? And in these verses, these brief verses, we find ten references to grumbling and three to quarreling. It's like things are getting intensely worse. And Moses, you know, they're quarreling against their leader, but Moses makes it clear what's really going on, doesn't he? In 17 verse 2. So he quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Instead of trusting God, they test God. It's almost like this is a trial scene. They're putting God in the dock. They've been out on this camping trip for quite a while now. And they're coming now and they want to judge God. Testing God means kind of putting him on probation. We're going to withhold our trust, God, until you prove and give us further evidence that you're worthy of our trust. It's full of doubt, this testing God business, that God is the one who's able to provide. Now how bizarre, isn't it, when he's sufficiently provided so much up to this point? And yet, no, now, now we're going to see if you, you really can do this, God. Things are taking a different turn. They're in another place where they're, where they're thirsty again. Well, we did, we did that lesson about being thirsty. Why are we back here again? Why do I have to go through this testing time again? Why do I have to do this trial again? God, I'm putting you on trial. That's what's going on in chapter 17. How we will, will react to the testing experiences. It, 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 that how, how are we reacting right now as you come this morning? How would you, where would you say your heart is at? Is your heart better towards God right now? Have you put God on probation? Are are we, as we come to Him, are are we people who are testing God, putting Him on trial? See, the times of heat and challenge in our lives, they reveal the spiritual state of our hearts. Uh, The circumstances are not the cause of this anger towards God. They're revealing what's there, the true spiritual state. And we have to see that grumbling, complaining, quarreling are serious signs of our discontentment with God. I I received fresh challenge this week about this very thing, fresh rebuke. Uh, I find it very easy to turn to grumbling and complaining. And and this, this, this section of Exodus reveals that when we do that, we're actually showing that we're discontented with God. We're putting God to the test. Now we seldom um, come out and say that. We tend, as the text suggests, to take our frustrations out on others. Uh, we quite often take it out on those who are our spiritual leaders, it says in this text. But we should take note that if our speech is always turning to bitterness, to complaint, it may well be revealing that we are doubting and grumbling against God. God. And, and there is a perpetual choice to be made in our daily struggles. Are we going to be those who complain or those who obey? Are we going to be those who, who grumble or, or take this as an opportunity to grow? Will we, will we test God or will we trust him? And yet note again how God responds with amazing grace. He provides in an extraordinary way, doesn't he? Through the striking of a rock that causes a stream of water to flow, sufficient for the Israelites and all their animals. One of the cross-references for this is 1 Corinthians 10. And and it's created a phrase that's always been a puzzle to me. In 1 Corinthians 10, it speaks of this generation as those who ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And wait for this. And that rock was Christ. So the Apostle Paul uh, reads this account and says, Ah yes, that rock was Christ. Now have you ever wondered how Paul got there? So, so look back at, at Exodus 17 verse 6. This is what God says. Uh, Go back to verse 5. Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Verse 6. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and the water will come out of it for the people to drink. I think of all the verses on God's provision, this is the most remarkable because here God identifies himself with the rock. He tells Moses that he'll stand in front of the rock. So when you think about this, as as Moses is striking the rock, who's he striking? He's striking God. Symbolically, he's striking God for the thirst quenching waters to flow. And I think in a symbolic way, um, this is a picture uh, of where all the source of blessing comes for the people of God. It comes from God himself. In a symbolic way, here's the essence of the gospel. That God in his grace puts himself in the place to be struck so that blessings could flow to the people who deserve it the least. That's what Jesus achieved on the cross, my friends. This is the, the, the one who, as it says in Isaiah 53, the one that we consider stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, you have been healed. I am the Lord who heals you. And As we read earlier, Jesus declaring in John 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So if you're going through a trial right now, if you're going through a struggle, if this is a real difficult time, then you need to see here, we need to see together that we have a moment of decision how we're going to respond to that. Are we going to be those who complain? Or obey? Are we going to be those who grumble or grow? Are we going to be those who test him or trust him? Will we depend uh, not on our feeble resources, or, or instead, will we kind of depend wholeheartedly upon Jesus Christ, God's gracious and complete provision to save us and sustain us right through to glory? That's the choice today. May God give us grace to grow in him. Let's pray, shall we?